Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit Goyal. In this very special Cardio Nerds case report, we, for the very first time, get to learn from colleagues in the UK. So join us for this trip to Cambridge, where we are joined by Drs. Mina Ferris, Johannes Berger, and Christina Peter. My friends, welcome to the show. Please introduce yourselves to the audience. Thank you so much for having us today with you guys. I have to say that I've been a huge fan of Cardio for a long time. I'm so happy to be with you today. Well, my name is Mina Faris. I'm currently a cardiology clinical fellow at John Rocket Hospital in Oxford. I moved to UK currently years ago, almost years ago, and I worked initially in Capri in my first year at cardiology clinical fellow, where I met my amazing friends, Christine and Johannes. So I love intervention cardiology and I want to pursue a career in formal interventions in the future. Outside medicine, I have I love spending time with my family, my wife, and my young kids, my young sons, Daniel and Phil. I love football, watching football, playing football, anything related to football. So I'm so happy with you today, guys. Thank you. Hi, I'm Johannes Becker. I'm a clinician scientist at Cambridge University. That means for one, I'm a stem cell scientist with a very keen interest on cardiac repair. I work at the Stem Cell Institute in Cambridge. And for the other, I also work at a, as a cardiology fellow at Edinburgh's Hospital. I think the big unifying theme here and my own personal big goal is to make broken hearts. On a more personal note, I think I'm quite outdoorsy. I love mountain biking, trail running, and I'm also, I have to admit, a bit of a culture vulture. I'm very much into expressionism, also a little bit into philosophy. Particularly, I love Wittgenstein, who worked for a long time at Cambridge, where I met my very talented and gifted cardiology colleagues, Nina and Christina. I'm Christina Peter and I'm a fellow at Nottingham actually at the moment. I have a subspecialty interest in heart failure, cardiac devices and inherited cardiac conditions. I obviously met my colleagues in Cambridge when I did a fellowship out there. Outside of work, I really love to travel. I've been to 52 countries so far and I enjoy a bit of amateur videography as well along the way. Um, and also to mention, I'm currently on maternity leave. Unlike the US, we are very generous here in the UK, so I've taken 10 months out to be with my baby, who's just under four months now. Wow, Christina, congratulations to you and your family, and that's amazing to hear. Johannes and Mina, amazing to be with you as well. I know this episode recording has been in the works for some time, but it's quite fortuitous because just this last week, my my mentor, Dr. John Riesar and Carter Nerd Star has been touring your neck of the woods and has been sending me tons of amazing photos, and I've been getting so jealous. So luckily, I get to virtually visit you guys with Amit, us Americans coming on over to Cambridge to hear about an important case of cardiology, but also also to meet such amazing colleagues from across the globe. So this is really a huge treat for us. Why don't you set the stage by taking us to one of your favorite places so we can get down and dirty with some cardiovascular medicine. Thank you so much, Dan. So as we mentioned, we're currently in different parts of the UK. So we decided to take you in Cambridge, basically to one of the amazing places in Cambridge. King's College. It lies beside the famous River Cam in Cambridge. The weather is so nice today and to make our tour more enjoyable, we get for you an ice cream from an amazing gelato shop called Jack's Gelato. 
That sounds absolutely wonderful. And thank you for providing us pictures so we can imagine exactly where we are, and especially pictures with your sons, Danny and Raphael, and the ice cream cone looks delicious. So here we are. Why don't we talk about some serious cardiology so that we can hopefully join Johannes in his quest to mend hearts. Let's get right on to the case. I met our patient a while back. He was 46 years old, male patient. He presented basically with progressive worsening shortness of breath over three to four months associated with feeling tiredness. He denied having orthopnea or proxesmal nocturnal dyspnea. There was no chest pain. He mentioned having postural dizziness for a few weeks, and he actually had one episode of blackout, and that's where the case became interesting, more interesting. The day before the admission, he, when he was getting off the toilet. And on further questioning, he mentioned intermittent palpitation. Uh, what was really interesting about this case and was triggered for me to go quickly and see his patient that he had extensive past medical cardiovascular history. So this patient basically treated for acute myocarditis two times before. First time was in 2014 and second time was in 2016. And more interestingly, in his first admission with acute myocarditis, he had complete heart block and needed implantation of permanent pacemaker. Same year, he was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, treated by cardioversion. Most recent echo in his file was in 2020, showed mildly dilated left ventricle with mildly impaired systolic function. He was diagnosed with hypercholesterolemia and depression, treated for depression in 2018. Readmission medication for this patient who was in warfarin for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation was in ramibril, atorvastatin, citalopram for depression. Our patient lives with his parents. He works as a part-time cleaner. He doesn't drive a car. He cycles for his work, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink alcohol. Family history, which was so important for this patient, he mentioned his father was diagnosed with chemical heart disease. No much information about that. And he was not aware of any other family history of cardiovascular problem. So at the time, what we thought about that we need to know more information about his previous mission because it's quite a long list of cardiovascular problem for a young patient to have. So we want to know more information about that. So Christina will talk us through his previous admission. Yes, I'm just going to talk about his two previous admissions. One was seven years prior to this one and the other was five years prior to the current one. Beginning with the first one, this was a chest pain and he was found to have a markedly elevated troponin and his ECG showed complete heart block at the time. An inpatient echocardiogram showed that he had a mildly dilated left ventricle with mild systolic dysfunction. Through invasive cornea angiography, ischemic heart disease was ruled out and he was treated for acute myocarditis before he following an outpatient cardiac MRI and outpatient PET-CT. The cardiac MRI showed infralateral late gadolinium enhancement, which you would see with myocarditis as well. And an outpatient PET-CT was performed to rule out sacridosis given the complete heart block in quite a young individual. This showed low-level uptake of uncertain significance, but not really any other features to suggest sacridosis. He then represented two years later, again with chest pain. And again, on this occasion, his troponin was markedly elevated. His echo was similar to the last presentation, showing a mildly dilated left ventricle with mild systolic dysfunction. He had a repeat MRI, but this was performed as an outpatient, so I presume it was a few weeks or months after the admission. And this showed that his LV had actually worsened and the LV looked not only dilated, but his ejection fraction had dropped 34%. Comparing the MRI to his previous one, there's extension of the late gadolinium enhancement and what is now involving the lateral wall as well. 
He had some other tests, which included Fabrice, as well as an autoimmune profile and a vasculitis screen. These were all negative. An endomyocardial biopsy was recommended, which the patient declined. And he had a repeat PET-CT because sarcoidosis seems the more common thing that we would see in this kind of presentation. But again, there was no features to suggest sarcoidosis. At this point, we are left uncertain of what his condition is. The notes go down as possible recurrent myocarditis, but it doesn't sit right. And therefore, he's basically treated symptomatically. Thank you, Christina. So that's really interesting to know because thank you for this summary for his previous admissions, because now we... To treat the patient, we need to take his current symptoms in context of his previous medical cardiovascular issues. So to summarize, this patient now coming with features suggestive of decompensation of his heart failure in background of cardiomyopathy, conductive abnormalities, and there is complete heart to block atrial fibrillation in the background history and possible ventricular arrhythmia causing syncope this time as well. So the two main questions now, the two main parts managing this patient, First, we need to manage his heart failure, make sure his acute management and long-term management of heart failure. And second, we need to answer the main question, why this patient, young patient, has all these cardiovascular problems and conductive abnormality and cardiomyopathies. But I'm so interested now to know about his physical findings, blood test and bedside tests, including the echo, his ECG and his chest X-ray. So in terms of his observations, they were pretty stable. He was a little bit tachycardic, 120 beats per minute during that presentation, oxygenating well on the room. And then from the bedside, he was slightly breathless when he was talking. He was alert and had extremities, a clear chest, no murmurs or auscultation of the chest. And the JVP, there was a little bit elevated with mild bilateral ankle edema. So taking collectively some signs of decompensated heart failure that we saw in this gentleman. In terms of his blood works, his full blood count was pretty unremarkable and his biochemistry, if anything, showed that his ALT was slightly raised. His cardiac profile showed a high-sensitive troponin of 2,200 and a repeat value of 1,900 and the NT pro-PNT was as high as 2,100. His chest x-ray showed a dual-chamber cardiac pacemaker. He had increased peripheral reticular markings, once again, consistent with cardiac failure and a small but stable left pleural effusion that we had seen on previous x-rays already. And then we had a look at his ECG, Christina. Yeah, so looking at his ECG, on the initial side, it can look a bit confusing, but basically shows a rate of 123 beats per minute. And you can see a paced ventricle rhythm, but it's, it's actually quite irregular. And if you look closer, you can see that there are lots of P waves, but not every P wave is followed on by the paced ventricular beats. So I suspect that looking at the ECG, the pacemaker is struggling to pick up all the P waves. And obviously, given this ECG, you'd want to do a pacemaker interrogation to work out what's going on. And it actually confirmed that this gentleman had an atrial tachycardia with the pacemaker interrogation. And it was just the fast rate meant that he wasn't tracking all the beats. On kind of other bits and pieces, his heart rate histogram was broad between 60 and 130 beats per minute, but there was also a small segment between 150 and 170 beats per minute, which would correspond to the atrial tachycardia. The most interesting finding was the fact that he had two uh, ventricular high rate picked up and the EGMs confirmed that they were, which corresponded with VT. One lasted only six beats, but the other one did last for 66 beats at 250 beats per minute. And this corresponded to the episode of syncope that the patient described. He went on to have bedside echocardiogram performed and they showed that his ventricle had got even worse over time. 
his left ventricle was dilated as before, but now his EF had dropped further to 20%. The other in really interesting finding is that actually his LV mast had increased and there was mild concentric LVH. So actually, there's a lot less now of what the findings where you need really to tie up together and to come up with a differential diagnosis. So what are your thoughts, Christina? What were your thoughts at that time when we mentioned the patient's story to you? What you're saying is right, there's quite a lot going on. So I'm just going to try and summarize the few things that we have in front of us. So firstly, obviously, from symptom perspective, he's coming with decompensated heart failure. He's had syncope and we know that this was due to VT from his pacemaker interrogation. And we also know that he has left ventricle that has deteriorated over several years, although the cause for this remains unclear. In terms of thinking why his LV is so poor, I guess the top differentiator here is that he's got some cardiomyopathy on, whether it be idiopathic or some genetic cause. I know previously acute myocarditis was blamed, but the story really is that in keeping, and it's a bit odd to have the current myocarditis and his LV is globally impaired as opposed to just be having regional wall motion abnormalities related to scarring. The other question is, has his LV got worse because of the atrial tachycardia? But we know that on the heart rate histogram, he does have normal heart rates for a lot of the time. And therefore, that would be, it would be hard to just blame this. Finally, we do know that he's got complete heart block and it's 100% V-pace. So could his LV have deteriorated because of pacing? And then the other thing, you know, young person, complete heart block, lip scar, you yeah. always think of sarcoidosis. But this gentleman has had several PEP CTs, which makes sarcoidosis highly unlikely. So thinking about the management, I always like to think of like acute and long term. In the immediate setting, obviously, the patient is breathless and has a syncope. First thing should be about optimizing his heart failure treatment. So offloading with diuretics and seeing what medications he's on. In the long term, the other things you need to think about is his device and upgrading it. Here he has severe impairment and has had confirmed VT. So you definitely would want to upgrade it to at least a defibrillator. But given that he's paced all the time and his LVA is deteriorating, I would upgrade him to a biventricular device, so a CRTD. The other thing you'd want to work out is why his LV is getting worse and is there anything we can do to reverse that? So in terms of possible investigations, you might want to consider repeating the MRI. Sometimes patterns can emerge and can give you clues. You might want to think about endomyocardial biopsy. And I think for me, as somebody who's very interested in inherited cardiac conditions, we definitely should be thinking about genetic testing. And then I guess very shiny, if despite everything we do, he gets worse, there's always the advanced heart failure team to think about. Before we discuss these things further, I'm going to hand the talk back to Johannes. It's going to tell us a bit about the clinical progression and what happened next. Thanks a lot for that, Christina. So a week after this uh, gentleman was admitted, he was established on optimized heart failure medical treatment. As he had suggested, he was on furosemide. He was started on bisoprolol, leplerinon, on tepicliflosin and on entresto. And he was feeling much better clinically. He was mobilizing on the wards. He had no significant cardiac symptoms at stage. Vital signs were stable. There was certainly no features of heart failure whatsoever clinically. His ECG showed a paced ventricular rhythm with a heart rate of 70 beats per minute and a repeat echocardiogram showed an LV systolic function that was slightly improved compared to previous skins but was still severely impaired overall. A repeat ECG showed that he was in sinus rhythm which was asensed with a ventricular paced rhythm. And then we went on to carry out further advanced diagnostics. Right, Christina? As discussed before, this gentleman did have a card, repeat cardiac MRI, which 
showed that his left ventricle was mildly dilated and moderately impaired. So actually, slightly improved compared to his previous MRI with an LVEF of 42%. And I think what was really interesting is that his LV mass had increased just very mildly. And there was new mild left ventricular hypertrophy with a concentric pattern. The maximum septal thickness was 14 millimeters. So not huge, but still seems slightly out of keeping of what you'd expect to see. His right ventricle was preserved in function. There was myocardial edema involved in the anterior valve and the late gadolinium enhancement that was previously noted basically expanded. The reporting radiologist concluded that there was active inflammation in the anterior valve on a background of chronic myocardial scarring in the lateral and the inferior valves. So just going to the differentials that the reporting radiologist suggested, so they included recurrent myocarditis, but as I mentioned before, the story just doesn't fit right. The clinical picture wouldn't fit recurrent myocarditis. Secondly, they suggested infiltrative diseases such as sarcoid. So I think infiltration is definitely one to think about. But again, I would say that sarcoid has been ruled out because it's had several PEPCTs. In terms of the T1 mapping, this was high, which should go against Fabrice, which is the other thing the radiologist suggested. And then finally, the radiologist also suggested all the HCM and amyloid are probably conditions to consider. The pattern of LGA was not typical for this. In terms of other advanced diagnostics, he actually did have a repeat PEPCT. I would argue that this was not necessary, but I think given what an unusual case this was, we just really wanted to be absolutely sure that we weren't missing sarcoid in some weird form. But as with the previous PEPCT, there was no evidence to suggest PEPCT. He, on this occasion, did have an endomyocardial biopsy, but unfortunately, after sending the samples off, the lab concluded that it was insufficient and therefore we were unable to obtain a result. So this kind of brings me on to the next section about cardiomyopathies and how do we get our head around classifying them. So I really like using the European system where broadly we divide it into hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, dilated cardiomyopathy, and the arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathies. And technically there is a fourth group which is unclassified, though I leave that in the background. So kind of looking at our patient, I guess I would probably lean towards dilated cardiomyopathy. It's, we know that it is dilated, the LV has become impaired over time. But what is odd is that his LV wall thickness is increasing. And usually in DCMs, from my personal experience, you see that as everything dilates, the walls become thinner and thinner. So the fact that it's become thicker is slightly unusual. The cases where I have seen preserved LV thickness or thickened LV is in burnt out hypertrophic cardiomyopathies because in these cases, the LV starts are very thickened, the rejection fraction is preserved, and towards the end of the clinical disease, the LV basically burns out and starts getting impaired and dilated. And even though the walls thin out, they don't thin out because they start off really thick, even though they're thinned out, they're still thick compared to a normal left ventricle. I would also like to talk a bit about genetic testing at this point. So in the United Kingdom, we have something called the National Genomic Test Directory, which I find you know, incredibly useful. And it gives us testing criteria that need to be met to run certain gene panels. And the reason I went into the classification is because the gene panel tests, they are grouped. So there's a separate gene panel for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, another one for dilated and arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, and then another panel for arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Coming back to our patient, he would fit the testing criteria, which basically describe that you have to have a dilated 
LV with impaired ejection fraction and an age of onset below 50 years. The testing criteria say that you can test people with an age of onset less than 65 years if there are conduction defects. The other thing to note is that patients don't always follow a textbook. And as I mentioned, even in this case, it's left ventricle is slightly thickened. And therefore, there's nothing wrong with testing people on multiple gene panels. And if you're uncertain, it is really important to include involve the ICC MDT to make these decisions. I certainly have tested people against multiple panels when the story isn't clear. So in this kind of case, I think besides doing the TCM panel, you could also consider doing the HCM panel. So at this point, I'm going to hand back to Johannes who's going to tell us a bit more about this gentleman and what happened next. Thank you very much for that, Christina. So Initially, we gathered a very thorough family history for this patient, and they clearly did not reveal any cardiac family history. But as it happened at that stage, it transpired that this was clearly not the case. And I think, quite frankly, what happened then more happened by cosmic choke rather than anything else. So on an afternoon during the ward rounds, we saw the patient when his dad also attended. And when we recap the family history at that stage, it transpired that the patient had a cousin that suffered a sudden cardiac death at a very young age. And there was a second cousin who underwent a heart transplantation quite recently. In addition to that, on that very afternoon, the father was waving a hospital letter from Edinburgh's hospital that had a genetic test on it from the patient's first degree aunt who had a genetic mutation confirmed at Edinburgh's Hospital 20 years ago. I'm not going to say which unit that was at Edinburgh's Hospital because I don't want to take it away, but that clearly changed our thinking drastically in that case since we were now thinking about hereditary cardiomyopathies. And Nina is going to lay these thoughts out for you a little bit further now. So yeah, family history actually, it was a game changer, Hannes, and uh, thank you so much for taking time and spending time with the father to come out with the right, proper family history for this patient. We now, we stopped there and we kind of started to revisit the information we have so far about our patient. So actually, to summarize, this patient now is patient with early age onset of heart disease, cardiomyopathy, undiagnosed cause, conductive abnormalities, including complete heart block at young age requiring pacemaker atrial arrhythmia and ventricular arrhythmia. Now we have a strong family history of cardiomyopathy with uh, a cousin who had transplantation recently. Another cousin died of some cardiac death and uh, diseased aunt. So retrospectively, when we thought about our patient, we found that he had difficulty in understanding any complex information conveyed to him. So we thought that there was a degree, some degree of intellectual disability. On examination as well, there was minor degree of progress on myopathy, which we initially put down into his long-term heart failure or cardiomyopathy. And there was mildly elevated liver enzymes as well we put down into congestive hepatopathy. But now having the family history in the context and collecting all this information, I like the way when I'm at like uh, displaying differential diagnosis in pockets. I have two big pockets now, which is one of them is infiltrative cardiomyopathies and second one is uh, muscular dystrophies. And then her infiltrative cardiomyopathies, basically we were more concerned about lysosomal storage disorders because we ruled out the relatively common infiltrative diseases like sarcoid, amyloid, hemochromatosis, and the classic sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So we now is left with lysosomal storage disorders. The other bucket, which is uh, muscular dystrophy, I personally saw three patients of Emory Dreyfus. So I thought Emory Dreyfus would fit this diagnosis because this patient with a lot of extra uh, cardiac features and family history and cardiomyopathy. Other 
muscular dystrophy still in the differential diagnosis, like myotonia dystrophy and Baker's disease. So in such cases, as Christina mentioned earlier, we either we would go and test a multi-gene panel for either tinnitus cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or both of them. Or if we are suspecting specific disease, we can go down the road of requesting a single specific gene diagnosing specific genes. So we, again, we stopped there and we sought a help from, we asked for help from the lysosomal disease team, which offered us with highly valuable information about his family, that his aunt and his two cousins had a confirmed NAMB2 mutation, which something at this point I didn't hear about before. It was the first time to hear this mutation. So subsequent request for our patient genetic testing, and he had the same NAMB2 gene mutation confirming our disease today, which is Danone disease. At this point, basically, yeah, I heard about Danone disease, but uh, we wanted to know more about this disease. What is it? How did it present usually in patients? Because we know it is rare disease. Actually, subsequently, we knew that there are only three families in the UK having this disease. Having this diagnosis now, we don't want to know more about this disease. So, Johannes, do you want to go through the Danone disease? Tell us more about it. Thanks a lot, Mina. Unlike Mina, you've never heard of Danon's disease before. You're not alone. I also had never heard of Danon's before. So it's very interesting, though. It's an interesting disease. It was described the first time in 1981 by Dr. Danon. It's an X-linked multisystem disorder, which is going to be clinically very relevant later on. And it's described as a triad of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, skeletal muscle weakness, intellectual impairment. And we now also know that there is a mutation in the LAMP2 gene, more specifically the LAMP2B isoform. So initially in 1981, Danon described this in only two unrelated 16-year-old boys with what he said was mental retardation, cardiomegaly, and proximal myopathy. Now, what was very interesting now historically, those patients had a muscle biopsy and Danon found that the glycogen content in the skeletal muscle was increased, but he thought that must be because of an enzyme defect. However, there was no enzyme defect demonstrable in the 80s back then, so it really remained an enigma. And they couldn't quite explain why this increase in the glycogen content was and what the cause of the disease rate. And then for the next 20 years, it was quite dark around Bennett's disease and not a lot happened until the year 2000 when two big nature publications were published back to back. It was by two groups, one of them at Columbia University in New York. One of them was a German group. The group from Columbia, from Nishino and colleagues, basically described 10 unrelated patients with Denon's disease. One of those patients, interestingly, still was alive from Dr. Denon's initial cohort. And they described that those 10 patients had a primary deficiency in the LAMP2 gene. So they showed that the patients had the mutation and they did not express the protein. At the very same time, in the same nature issue, this German lab now had a mouse model of Thannin disease. And what they did is that they showed that those animals had a LAMP2 deficiency, but they were also able to now describe what the disease actually did to the animals. They had an extensive accumulation of autophagic vacuoles. So there was a lysosomal defect of some kind. And those vacuoles were accumulating in the skeletal muscle, in the heart, the liver, and other internal organs. And the cardiomyocytes that they then examined, they were structurally abnormal, and the contractility of those cardiomyocytes was severely impaired. So what both of those groups concluded, essentially, was that in patients with Danon disease, there is a LAMP2 deficiency, and that protein 
is actually critical for process called autophagy. Now, that was interesting, but over the next 10 years now, we really understood more about the disease clinically because now we were in a position to identify our patient population. Only now we knew which gene defect was causing then and disease. The natural history of the disease was then subsequently studied and it was in the Chalmer publication 2009 and in another bigger paper in 2011. Those two works had a look at Firstly, the cohort of seven young patients which were, who were all aged between 7 and 17 years in age. And um, this young cohort of patients, all having dental disease by the age of 14 to 24, had severe LV impairment with a mean EF of 25%, cavity enlargement, left ventricular hypertrophy, and particularly adverse clinical consequences such as progressive heart failure, sudden cardiac death, or the need for heart transplantation. And on autopsy of these patients, we found exactly what was described in that nature paper. So we saw those vacuolated myocytes and some changes that were very typical as well for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In that other larger paper, that looked at 82 patients of 36 families. So you might actually think that they scrapped together all the Dannon patients in the planet that they could find. What they found was very interesting. So men were severely affected with cognitive disabilities. 100% of the cohort had cognitive disabilities. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was found in 88% of the of male patients with Dannons and muscle weakness present in 80%. So men had a very high morbidity and they were very unlikely to reach the age of 25 without the cardiac transplants. That made a lot of sense if we think about the genetics. So it's an excellent genetic disease which affects men much, much more severely than women. If we look at the average onset of first symptoms that occurs in males at the age of 12, around 12 years, in females it's only 28 years. The average onset of transplantation is on average required at the age of 18 in males, but only 34 in females. And the average age of death is usually at the age of 19 in males and age of 35 in females. So quite a big gender gap here in, in Denon disease. That was fascinating summary, historical summary about Denon disease, Johannes. But actually at this point, when you mentioned to me the summary at the start, I was so interested, but I had to main question that's spoiled. So first question, in contrast to many other forms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you mentioned that the progression to severe hypertrophy, heart failure, needing a transplantation in male Danon disease, usually in the second decade. So our patient presented at like age of 40 and he's now 46 or 47 year old. So do we have explanation why our patient presented that late? Second, we understand now, now the gene responsible for the disease. Do we have the mechanism? Do we know the mechanism why it's causing cardiomyopathy and other extracardiac features? I think these are both great questions, Mina. So uh, first one, why was this patient still alive, actually, when we have seen him? So I think there are many reasons of why this could be the case. He was clinically treated. He had a permanent pacemaker implanted and clearly otherwise he would probably have died by that, by that point when we met him. He also was then on optimized medical treatment. And I think those, those two are reasons that probably play into it. Now, I'm certainly not a geneticist, but one could argue that there might be reduced penetrance of the gene mutation that he's got or epigenetic regulation that might explain why, in his case, he actually presented and survived later. 
Now, with regards to the second question, the mechanism of tendon disease, we do understand that cell debris in cells is usually taken up by autophagosomes. And these autophagosomes usually fuse with lysosomes. And only then the content of these phagosomes can be degraded. If that process is inhibited in one way or another, you get extensive accumulation of this intra-autophagocytic content and that can result in, in severe cellular dysfunction. Now, in tendon disease in particular, this fusion process of the lysosomes and the autophagosomes is mediated via LAMP2. And we know in tendon that is exactly not expressed. We don't have the LAMP2 protein in there, but the fusion of autophagosome and lysosome is inhibited. And that also results in one of the pathological hallmarks of the disease. You've got this extensive intracytoplasmic vacuoles. You get them in the heart muscle, you get them in the skeletal muscle, in the liver, and they contain a lot of glycogen, just as Denon has described that in the 80s already, but at the time he couldn't quite understand why that was the case. Well, Hannes, having all these mechanistic insights are amazing, really, to understand such a rare disease with such amount of information is, is really fascinating. So that's why you all say that we're studying, for scientists, studying the rare diseases so far amount of importance because diagnosing rare disease and finding the mechanism behind it, now we can offer specific treatment for our patient. Yeah, I know the gold card treatment for heart failure is amazing, but eventually it is kind of reactive to what happened to the patient. But do we, can we do something, a proactive approach to our patient to protect him from having consequences of his cardiomyopathy? So do we have any specific therapeutic options for our patients? Yes. So I think we didn't go there directly, but I think one technology that certainly allowed us to understand tendon disease a lot better mechanistically and thereby also opened up a whole avenue for therapeutic options for this disease and for lots of other diseases, by the way, as well, are pluripotent stem cells. So with induced pluripotent stem cells, we are now able to take a peripheral blood sample from patients. We isolate bone-marrow-derived mononuclear cells, and then by exposing those cells to a cocktail of different cytokines, we reprogram them back to pluripotent stem cells. And what we then can do in diseases such as tendons, we can differentiate those cells to beating heart muscle cells, to cardiomyocytes, and they exhibit all the structural and functional hallmarks as you would expect them in tendon disease. So now I think that has particularly been propagated in the case of tendons by uh, the Adler lab in San Diego in the States, who very early on used that as a model to study the disease. And there was one paper that came out in PNAS in 2019 that really knocked it out of the park. They completely showed how you can exploit that technology to understand the mechanism better and they also open up an avenue for new therapies. So they used stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes from denim patients to show that it's the 2B isoform that is actually required for this lysosome fusion with the autophagosomes. And um, just conceptually, it's very interesting to mention this. If you take a human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocyte, you can CRISPR out, that is the, the CRISPR cast of the gene scissors, so you can cut out any given gene. In that case, it's the LAMB2B gene. And if you take that out, your cardiomyocytes are going to exhibit tendon disease because they can no longer generate the protein. So if you then correct this gene defect in cardiomyocytes that actually do have tendon disease, you can restore a normal 
healthy cardiomyocyte with normal function and normal autophagosome lysosome fusion. And the reason why I mentioned that is because this has really led to very interesting treatments. And coming back now to your question, what can we do for these patients for a very rare disease, really? As Christina has pointed out early on, it's essential that we start them on optimized medical therapy. If patients do need devices such as full chamber pacemakers or biventricular pacemakers, that will be part of the treatment. But the final common pathway for these patients so far really has been a heart transplantation. Now, tying in the stem cell and the regenerative medicine here, the very lab that I mentioned earlier on, the Edler Lab at San Diego, seems to have taken it one step further. They tested gene therapy in mice with famine disease. They used an adenovirus with a LAMP2B gene in it. And when they injected animals with famine disease, they actually could show restored heart, liver function and a normal skeletal muscle. That was particularly interesting if they looked functionally at the heart function normalized. And they also were able to demonstrate that higher doses of that adenovirus correlated with higher survival in the animals. And if you now think that's more science, that's um, like clinically not relevant, it, this resulted in a clinical trial that's currently ongoing. So this is a non-randomized open-label phase one clinical trial where th that is basically using a recombinant adeno-associated virus that carries this very LAMP2B transgene in it. And it started to enroll patients in April 2019. It's projected to close in October 2024. And aiming to enroll seven to ten male patients with famine disease. We just had a press release from the company conducting the trial, and they had two pediatric patients with famine disease so far treated, and there have been no safety concerns reported so far, which is obviously at that early stage that the main aim. And I think this is really going to be exciting to hear more from what gene therapy can do for these patients. But I think it sounds very promising from what we've seen so far. Thank you so much, Johannes, for this great summary and sounds really promising. And for our patient, I'm so interested to know what happened with our patient next. Christina, would you mind just tell us what happened with our patient? Yes, I mean, um, very briefly, unfortunately, gene therapy is obviously not available right now, although it is in the process of being available, hopefully very soon. So in our case, this gentleman's heart disease has progressed and he's therefore on the heart transplant waiting list. His first degree family members have all been screened and are being closely monitored. Wow, Christina, Johannes, and Mina, thank you so much for sharing this very important patient story and, and really highlighting Danon's cardiomyopathy in such a spectacular way, really encompassing the history of it, taking it all the way to where we are today and even looking forward to the future so that we can offer things to our patients that people of yesteryear could only have dreamed of. So thank you so much for being here with us today. We are literally blown away by the excellent clinical care and the scientific prowess that you all demonstrated here. And might we just add a, a very warm congratulations to Christina. You know, we had to reschedule this in the past because you had just become a mom, which is for all the reasons that we've ever had to reschedule anything, the best of reasons. And we were struck that you're in the middle of a 10-month maternity leave. And my wife as a NICU fellow, we had our twins, she had three months. And when we had our first son, Dhruv, she had just under eight weeks. You know, we learned so much from you today, the art of storytaking the diagnostic excellence, role of multimodality imaging, when and how to interpret genetic testing, basic science, translational research, clinical research, next generation genetic therapies. But another lesson that we should probably take from our friends across the pond is how we can better integrate our personal lives and family lives into our work lives 
for work-life harmony. So Christina, congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you for obviously understanding and uh, being so flexible with us. It's been really great to be here today. It was absolutely worth the wait. We would have waited 10 years if that's what it would have taken. (laughs) Thank you so much, guys, for having us with you today. It's been a pleasure for all of us being there. We want to welcome now our expert, Dr. Sharon Wellson. She's a cardiology consultant. She's now in Australia. She used to work in Edinburgh in Cambridge. She has a special interest in cardiac imaging and and earth cardiac conditions as well. So welcome, welcome, Dr. Sharon. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Sharon Wilson. I'm a consultant cardiologist in Canberra in Australia, and I previously used to work at Anne Brooks Hospital in Cambridge where this case was set. I am primarily an imaging cardiologist with a background in multimodality imaging as well as an interest in inherited cardiac conditions. I'm primarily interested in cardiomyopathies that affect younger people, and this is beautifully highlighted by this case. Thank you for the opportunity to contribute to this case, which crosses multiple countries. It may be the first case within the UK, but it is also probably the first case that's been recorded for cardio nerds from Australia. But back to this very interesting case. This case certainly is one of the rarest of the rare presentations that you will come across in the world of cardiomyopathy, but it was been beautifully presented by Dr. Mina Ferris, Dr. Johannes Berger, and Dr. Christina Peter. It certainly made his initial presentation and his subsequent management appear a lot more coherent than it was at the time when he first presented to Adam Brooks. I first came across this patient when I started working in the UK, when I came over to do my clinical fellowship in Addenbrooke's. And at the time, Danans was the thing that would have been furthest from our mind as we simply thought this man had a case of myocarditis, which was complicated by a complete heart block. But this case highlights if the patient doesn't seem to fit into a box and it all seems a little bit strange, you need to think about it a little bit more clearly and time is your friend at this particular point. There's a lot of value going back to do a 360 assessment at the initial data, as sometimes patterns will become more obvious when you have more than one time point, or in this particular case, when you have more than one family member. This case is also an excellent example of a multi-system disease, as one branch of the family were being treated within the liposomal clinic, which is a closely linked department to the cardiology department within Anbrooks, but we were unaware of this history as the proband or the index patient was unable to provide that history, some of which was related to his intellectual impairment, but some of it was related to family estrangement. And obviously, once that history was available, the diagnosis became a lot clearer as we had a genetic marker that we could subsequently go and test for. With Danone's disease, it's a very rare condition and most cardiologists would be unlikely to see it. It is quite often seen within the population of hypertrophic cardiomyopathies and in the literature there's estimates to up to 2 to 5% of all Hocum patients don't have Hocum but instead do have Danone's. This is becoming more clearer with the advent of easier access into genetic testing as the treatments are very different as Danone's patients have a much higher rate of cardiac transplantation. Going back to our index patient, he certainly did not present as a typical Danone's as he did not have any of the major phenotypic changes. With the eye of retrospect, there are a few features that we could have honed in on. 
which primarily relate to his liver function abnormalities. Within Denon's patients, you do see a rise of the transaminases, and you can also see a CK rise, which is out of keeping with either hepatic or renal impairment. Our patient did have elevated troponins at the time of his first two presentations, and this was thought to be related to acute episodes of myocarditis, as that's what he clinically was presenting. As we'd ruled out or tried to rule out the major competing diagnosis of sarcoidosis, as well as excluding underlying ischemic cardiac disease, because common things occur commonly rather than going for the needle in the haystack as your first diagnosis. If he presented as a more classical Danone's disease with a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy phenotype, we would have gone down a different management pathway. But going back to the beginning of the story, he presented initially with heart block and atrial fibrillation, which is an odd combination, especially in a younger person. Interestingly, when you have a look in the literature, atrial fibrillation is the most common arrhythmia seen in Danone's patients. There are case reports of patients who've had ventricular arrhythmias. We're seen in the initial study that was performed by Marianne et al, but has not been replicated in further work. When you look at the population, there seems to be a higher incidence of females with ventricular arrhythmias rather than males, but understandably, it's a very small population to make this extrapolation from. Yes, it's an infiltrative disorder, so it's likely there is a burden of conduction disease, and hence a primary prevention defibrillator is a sensible management option if the patient has a hokum phenotype or there is a history of sudden cardiac death. You can also see shortening of the PR interval as well as some alterations of the QRS morphology, which could actually be confused for WPW. The mechanism behind it appears to be related to the deposition of the intracellular deposits, but it's something to be aware of rather than something to be obsessional with, as this currently relates to case report data. Changing gears from the electrical side of Denon's to more of a discussion about ICC in general. Managing patients who've got an inherited cardiac condition, as you would understand, is an extremely rewarding branch of cardiology as you get to treat both the patient and their family. It is academically very challenging, as demonstrated by the case presentation today, as it is constantly being updated as science improves. There's a lot of room for basic science and application of emerging technology. Most ICC specialists either subdivide within cardiomyopathy, inherited lipid disorders, aortopathy, or electrical ICC, which is primarily things such as long QT syndrome. And you can kind of understand why ICC is quite complicated because there are so many abbreviations that do take a bit of time to get used to. At various points, the MDTs can sound like an alphabet soup. But ultimately, it boils down to looking after a patient and their family, which is why most people are drawn to inherited cardiac conditions. We've all been very fortunate to be trained within Addenbrooke's, which has a very long-standing history with ICC service and has a wide range of patients with conditions that are often the footnotes of Harrison's which often leads to common for Cambridge rather than common for the rest of the world. Denon's disease certainly is one of those conditions as prior to arriving in the UK, I had never seen a case of Denon's or several other conditions that I encountered during my fellowship and consultant time in Cambridge. Another condition that we should have thought about at the time of the index presentation would have been PRKAG2 syndrome, which is also another rare cardiac condition. It's an early onset autosomal dominant inherited disease, which is characterized by ventricular pre-excitation 
SVTs, as well as cardiac hypertrophy. It's also associated with chronotropic incompetence and advanced heart blocks, which also leads to premature pacemaker implantation. Most people are aware that if you have a younger patient who has a pacing requirement, the most common thing to think about is sarcoidosis. Other things to think about would also include the muscular dystrophies, as there has been cases of patients who have had heart blocks and associated with a dilated cardiomyopathy phenotype, which would be more in keeping with the index presentation. If there is arrhythmias as well as hypertrophy, which this patient subsequently went on to develop, other considerations would be including Febreze disease, which we screen for, as Febreze is a common for Cambridge condition, as there's a large referral population into our hospital. Another condition to consider would also be Pompe's disease, but this primarily has got quite a significant hypertrophic phenotype, but it occurs in infants and young children rather than our patient who is in his 30s. It is also one of the inherited conditions that is tested for in newborn screening within the UK, but it's not the case around the rest of the world. At present, as far as I'm aware, it is not being screened for in Australia, but hopefully that'll be changing the next few years. As panel testing is expanding and access into panel testing is significantly cheaper and easier instead of going back to looking for the change relating to the lack of an enzyme or the lack of a byproduct, we'll be able to run a panel test to identify the causative mutations, which is certainly going to change the landscape in the ICC world. One of the most interesting things about Danon's disease is it is quite a heterogeneous condition, which appears to be related to the LAMP2 protein. LAMP2 protein forms three isotypes, which is LAMP2A, LAMP2B, and LAMP2C, which differ at the liposomal transmembrane domain as well as the short cytosolic tail. Although LAMP2A is expressed in more tissues, it appears that LAMP2B seems to be the more pathogenic mutation as it is expressed at a higher level within the heart, skeletal muscle, and the brain. The actual understanding of how this is causing the features that we see clinically in Danons is still very debatable and further research is ongoing at present. Most of the information that we have about Danons patients is coming from case reports or small case series. And interestingly, there's been a recent case report of a patient in Wuhan in China who had a similar presentation with myocarditis. Interestingly, the patient from Wang et al. was female rather than male, and she had certainly a significantly more rocky course than our patient. She required mechanical circulatory support, and during her admission was found to have a more classical presentation with hypertrophy. We can't draw any conclusions from this case report, as she was also positive for influenza AIgG, which further muddies the waters. Going down to the subspecifics of our particular patient's mutation, this is where ICC becomes very interesting as you can trace family history. There is only one other family that has the same mutation as our patient and this has been published by Professor Cox's group also from Cambridge so it's likely our families are intertwined. From his work one of the interesting points or the very interesting points which I think will require further exploration as we become more personalized with our approach to medicine was one branch of the families had a very severe Danon's phenotype and a cousin had a much milder phenotype despite having the same mutation. 
This was thought to be related to body habitus as a severe phenotype seemed to be associated with trunkal obesity and the branch with the less significant phenotype appeared to have a normal, if not underweight, body habitus, which raises a lot more questions regarding the interactions of liposomes and obesity. This may be related to imprinting, but it would be an interesting area of further research. One of the other areas of further research would be the genetic transfers, which Johannes had mentioned, but there's also work being done of looking at suppression of the mTOR pathway, and there has been some evidence that serolimus has been used as a therapeutic target to try and see if you can suppress down the dysregulated autophagia, which at least will provide a window into some treatment options. But for a general cardiology audience, I think it's more useful to go through the things that you do need to know about Danone's disease. So the main point is Danone is a multi-system disease, which primarily involves heart, skeletal muscle, as well as cognitive impairment. You can also get some retinal changes with a retinopathy, but this is also very rare, even rare within the Danone's population. Within Danone's, there is no clinical diagnostic criteria, and most of the diagnosis relates to confirmatory genetic testings with a LAMP2 mutation. The treatment of Danone's is for following the standard treatment guidelines for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as well as for heart failure consideration of ablative therapy with patients who've got cardiac pre-excitation or arrhythmia, physical therapy and occupational therapy for improvement of skeletal muscle weakness, as well as visual age if required for retinopathy. There is a role for early referral to transplantation, as well as implantation of a primary prevention device. Standard heart failure therapy is utilized, but there is significant lack of data on whether this would change the patient's outcome. The most important thing to think about with a Denon's patient is to also screen appropriate family members for the presence of the mutation as well as clinical findings. For clinical findings, surveillance, ECGs, echocardiograms and cardiac MRIs should be performed. The time interval is not defined but would be recommending anywhere between two to five years depending on the local guidelines. There is a role for ambulatory arrhythmia monitoring with halter monitoring at least yearly to rule out the presence of ventricular arrhythmias or atrial arrhythmias and also involvement with the neurology team for assessment of muscle weakness. As cardiologists, we need to bring in the other experts. There's also a role for former neurological testing to establish an intellectual baseline as often it can be subtle changes rather than significant intellectual disability. Simple screening questions such as are they able to keep a job? Are they able to manage their own finances? Do they require help with activities of daily living? And how are their interpersonal relationships? Other screening tests should be discussing family history to see if there has been any changes since the patient was last reviewed. As even if there's significant estrangement in the family, sudden cardiac deaths are memorable as are cardiac transplants. Screening of liver function abnormalities is also relevant and should be considered. Transaminase elevation without impairment of synthetic function should also raise flags that there may be an abnormal process. There has been some work done in biomarkers, primarily looking at troponin as well as CK elevation, but this is also relatively non-specific and usually is the bane of everyone's existence. There's no data available for BNP. But as we become more advanced in proteonomics, this is likely to change. 
Another important consideration would be for reproductive age females within Denon's family, there is a significant role for pre-implantation genetic testing. The same discussions can be had with male-affected Denon's patients, but as there is limited data secondary to their life expectancy challenges, this is more a theoretical point rather than a practical point. As there's an excellent disorder, male offspring have a 50% chance of being affected and females have a somewhat more confusing inheritance pattern secondary to X in inactivation as it is an easily identified mutation and appears to be a monogenetic disease. This would be a relatively easy disease process to screen embryos for but patients should be referred to their appropriate nearest genetic center for discussion prior to contemplation of pregnancy. This is one of the most difficult conversations to have with a family as there is quite a lot of guilt associated with most of the inherited cardiac conditions and you spend a lot of time working within this sphere, having discussions with the family about the role of prevention as well as reassuring families so there's nothing that they could have done to prevent the inherited condition from occurring within their family. I would highly recommend going to a very large center if you wish to see a range of clinical presentations for some of the inherited cardiac conditions. It is quite useful to see things that you may not come across in your daily practice so that you have a toolkit of how to approach the problem of a patient that may be common for Cambridge but not common for the rest of the world. I'd like to thank Cardio Nerds for the opportunity to contribute to the excellent case from Mino, Johannes and Christina to highlight a rare but very intriguing patient presentation that distinctly falls into the category of zebra.